through verses 1 through 3 of Revelation 20. And then this week, we're going to begin with verse 4 and handle verse 4 in light of our conclusions from verses 1 through 3. So some of you would say, well, I wasn't here for the point of conclusion and the homework, so now I am lost, hopelessly, to go forward from here into verse 4. Let's all take a deep breath together and suggest that's not the truth. You're not hopelessly lost any more than the rest of us are as we're handling these images together. But I will then conclude with each of us together briefly a word of conclusion regarding verses 1 through 3 of what we have seen so far and how that shapes what we see in 4, 5, and 6 from here. This week I will just deal with verse 4 primarily and the next week we'll do more heavy lifting. So everybody is exercising their brain so diligently. Last week I looked out and everyone's eyes remained open for all some 50 minutes of time together. And I am thankful for that. If I could conclude with you for what we have done to this point that will shape us going forward is verses 1 through 3 there you see the key piece that we have spoken of is somewhat the point of uh, debate since the church has been founded. And that is the role of the thousand years that you just had read for you. And the question of when is this thousand year period and what is the characterization of this time period. And so we have sought together to recognize the purpose and place of the thousand years. In summary, I would share with you to this point going forward. I would recognize this thousand year period as beginning with the first advent of Jesus Christ of Nazareth in history. When, when Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the beginning, the advent, the Christmas season that then begun his ministry. Where this thousand year period that we're reading of here in Revelation 20 verses 1 through 3 and then continuing in 4, 5, and 6. When is this thousand year period? I am suggesting to you that we can confidently conclude that it was beginning with Christ's first coming and it extends unto his return. This is how I am understanding when this place in time of the thousand years and it coordinates for me, hopefully, I have drawn you, as I said last week, under the bus with me. And we both find it very forceful. That it is seen in Christ's ministry very evidently as we explore the content of the ministry of Christ in the Gospels. We see from Revelation 20 into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that record of our Lord's ministry in time parallels to the images we're seeing in Revelation 20. And we're recognizing the symbols of Revelation 20 actually find their concrete in time Expression, thank you. I'm expressionless. Their expression in time in the Lord's ministry. We were able to explore that last week together to indeed see that that is the case. What then is this thousand years to be characterized by, or what might we call properly this thousand year period, the age of redemptive history right now between our Lord's first coming and his return, this age or thousand years is properly called the gospel 
age of which you are a part. This is the thousand-year period. It is characterized by two things according to the symbolism. And then according to the symbolism, trying to work through the symbols and the images to find what stands behind them concretely, of what these symbols speak to, what the signs are pointing toward. And so when we go into the gospel ministries, we find primarily out of these images, two things stand out. One, Satan's power to deceive is severely wounded. It is curtailed. He is no longer able to function in the capacity of deceit and deception that he once was prior to the coming of our Lord, prior to the mission of Christ in the earth through his ministry, that indeed, by the kingdom ministry of Christ, Satan is bound. For we immediately recall, lest I'm now undoing in your mind the work that we set forward last week and saying, I think we just made a huge leap. No, wait, shh, time out, wait. We haven't made a huge leap. We've recognized exactly what the image is pointing to for how shall I plunder a man's house? How shall I plunder his city? How shall I overthrow his kingdom? Lest I first bind the strong man. Then shall I plunder And so it is that we recognize this gospel age is a time characterized by, number one, Satan's power being curtailed through the ministry of the gospel. Secondly, the second characterization of our time in history right now with the Lord, what what strengthens us as a church, Christians, Christ followers, strengthens us is that the kingdom of our Lord is advancing through the preaching of the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, whereby captives are being set free. Those who were in bondage are now being freed, loosed from their binding, because the enemy has become bound. So now the kingdom then, how much of the kingdom is advancing? Where is it advancing at? In small little pockets? Well, we find out it is advancing among every single nation. Through the missionary institution of the church. These people are called missionaries. Or Christians. Sharing the gospel, whereby the Spirit penetrates the heart, gives eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that perceives truth, and a life is regenerated. This is the advancement of the kingdom of God through the church. So that we hear in our Lord in Acts chapter 1, as he speaks to the church after the resurrection. So you're following me now historically. The Lord Jesus Christ has been raised. And as he meets with the disciples, he is teaching them in chapter 1 the contents for, I believe it is, 40 days. He is with these after he has been raised. And he is teaching the contents of, guess what? The kingdom of God. He is discussing this with his people, the kingdom of God. That is beginning to advance. And then guess what else he says? After he has explained the contents of that kingdom, he has commanded them, 
to go from Jerusalem, Judea, and how much further? To the ends of the earth, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So this is the gospel age that we, the church, Christians, are a part of being faithful to witness to. So this morning we continue to advance from this brief summary of what we recognize where we are located from last week in verses 1 through 3. We're located in the squarely in the gospel age between the Lord's first coming and his return. Now, this is the vision of verses 1 through 3 of the symbols that you look at, the dragon being grasped by the angel who is a servant of the Lord, and he is being bound, and he is being thrown into the pit, and it is being shut up and sealed over, and his authority is being stripped him. This is really speaking to the implications of Satan's binding in the earth, right? Because we're looking at the physical ministry of our Lord, how this is taking place in time through his kingdom proclamation, demonstrated through his kingdom healing. Demonstrating the kingdom comes not in word only, but in power. This second text that we're going to begin looking at in verse 4 is not another thousand years. It was read for you already that it says, And they shall come to life and reign with Christ for how long? A thousand years. So the question to each of us already and looking at the text is, are we discussing another thousand years? So we're seeing that the thousand years that Satan was bound by in this time period, we're now talking about people dying and coming to life and raising. Are we talking about another thousand years, a different thousand year period? And some of us are asking right now, what does this actually have to do with me? A lot. So, is this another thousand years or the same thousand years? Well, we can all take a deep breath because no one anywhere that I know of argues that it's a different thousand years. So already we're like, okay, that settles a major debate. There are not two different thousand year periods even according to anybody in this passage. Okay, good. So we're talking, we all agree, we're talking about the same period of time. So I would suggest to you that what we are looking at is the same overlapping time period. So you have the first coming of the Lord, the thousand years, his return, which would end that thousand year gospel church age. And during this time, we're reading of different realities taking place. People are like coming to sit on thrones. They're beginning to rule judicially. There's some who died and then came to life, and they're all going on in a thousand year period. All right, awesome. We recognize we're talking, therefore, about the same thousand year time period. So what's the difference between this time period and this time period? If it's the same time period, I would share with you, if I have not completely, utterly lost you at this point, we are dealing with the victory of Christ in the earth in verses 1 through 3, the ramifications of his ministry in the ongoing missionary institution of the church. And right now what we're looking at is somewhat a different dimension of that same thousand-year period. We are looking at what I would submit to you this morning in verse 4 is a heavenly dimension of the same time period. So it isn't one thousand years ended in verse 3. 
another thousand years begins in verse 4. What we're recognizing is that these two thousand-year periods are the same thousand-year period, just like everybody. So we're with everybody at that point, and we're recognizing these are dimensionally different. One is speaking of the ramifications of Christ in time, us. In the ongoing expansion of the kingdom of God through the gospel. And then we're looking at those who have died and gone to be with the Lord during this same time period. They have died and have been raised to be with him. This is what we're looking at. Jesus speaks this way. If I could read it for you just by way of introduction as we begin to kind of briefly walk through our passage. If I could share with you, this is maybe helps to kind of put together Matthew 28. You don't need to turn there. I'll briefly read it for you, but stick with me in the thought of what we're looking at in dimension one, dimension two of the same 1,000-year period. It is Jesus I read for you last week. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to a mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they had saw him, they fell down and they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do you you see this? One authority, one rule, one reign, one king over two realms. Go. Therefore. Why go? Because I have authority. So go. And make disciples of every nation. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. To the end of the one age. I am with you until the end of the age. This is the age. And he is ruling over in this one age. Two dimensions. Over all of heaven. And over all. All of the earth. So might the church go. Therefore, I think maybe we can put flesh on the thought that you have rejoiced over many times before as the people of God, that you hear the Apostle Paul when he says this to you. Now you can eagerly, after Revelation 20, you can even more so rejoice to say that to die is Many say, I fear not death, but I do fear the manner with which death will find me. None of us is looking forward to that, are we? So perhaps with trepidation we fear the manner with which death will find us. But we fear not dying. For we come to realize to die indeed is gain in our experience with Christ. The broken one we have now. The kind of somewhat shadowy existence we experience with righteousness. The long for growth that we experience within our own hearts. That faith would become sight. This text will greatly empower. 
That to say to die and to go and be with Christ. Once again the apostle would say. Is far better. So this brings hope does it not? To the Christian experience. When we actually make sense. Of our Lord ruling right now in heaven. To die is gain. So it is that we'll look at this text. If I could show you how this is, I am rather, how I am just so absolutely with all the unction I have convinced that this be the case. Can I show it with you from the word of God? If we look at Revelation 20, I'll just begin there at our very first clue in verse 4. That we know that we are looking upon the symbols in 1 through 3. And an earthly ramification of what takes place in the one victory of Christ. And now we're looking upon its corresponding heavenly dimension in victory and the authority of Christ. Look at the very first clue there in verse 4. John continues to expand the content of the vision. Then I saw, as he expands what he has already spoken to us, then I saw thrones, and seated on them are those to whom the authority to judge was committed. How is it that we know immediately, if I could lead you in recognizing you have now just entered into a heavenly context, you have, you have been invited in to a picture of glory In this age, if you were to die tonight. And so to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is it. In this age. I would share with you that we know this is the case because there are, and I don't mean to be overloading you with numerical notions, but it is that there are 46 occurrences of the word throne or thrones throughout the book of Revelation. And we know out of the 46, 42 have to do with God and his rule. And all 42 have to find the throne located specifically, guess where? In heaven. So we have 46 uses of this furniture. And out of this furniture and its role in helping us contextualize where we're located, 42 of them have relation to God and of Christ and of their rule. And all of them, without question, are located in the same place. Heaven. The others have to do with the beast and other images that, again, are not earthly. But these, indeed, are heavenly, outside the bounds of the earthly, physical. So already we're being invited into the authority and the reign of Christ through the furniture that is used. This means if we say that these thrones are functioning to set up a heavenly context for us to continue to recognize the furniture in the room, the people who are there... In the role that they play, we recognize that we have just opened the door into a heavenly room. And we're looking at heavenly furniture that's doing it. It's setting us up for a context. So if it is heavenly, that the text would bear out very clearly, these are heavenly thrones. Therefore, in a heavenly place, a heavenly dimension. It means then that they are not physical pieces of furniture. They are not squarely concerned with physical people 
sitting on them. They are not awaiting a physical future where they will come and they will be earthly and there will be a select few who are then seated on them. We already recognize if it is the one, it isn't the other. We have been drawn into a heavenly vision of the heavenly authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is, this will be increasingly clear to you that we are in heaven and this will be of great benefit for your soul. I trust as we look at the rest of this text together for a few more moments that now you have already squarely put yourself into position to recognize this vision of heavenly realities and it will become clear to you the soul's significance for you as we recognize two things about them. If we are there in the throne room, I want you to notice Two things about it. Look at the text that says, and they were seated on them. So there's thrones and seated on them are those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Aren't you already asking? Or maybe you read this text earlier this week before we got to it to see where are we going in the apocalypse this week? And you have asked yourself as a good student, who are these people sitting on these thrones? Or right now, you're kind of rocked off your chair. There's people seated on thrones. Who are they? Well, let us look. Number one, to whom this promise was made. So, who received this kind of promise? That they would be performing this kind of activity. So, our inquiry begins with the book itself, doesn't it? In the apocalypse, was this promise given to somebody at some point with which now we're looking upon them performing this task? Who are these people seated on these thrones? In other words, to whom was this promise granted? Well, let's go back and see where it was explicitly promised. Go with me in the book of the apocalypse here with Revelation. Go back to chapter 2 with me so that we can mine out that we know indeed we're in a heavenly context. Looking at the heavenly rule of Christ. Because we see here a promise that was made. And people are having it fulfilled. To whom was this promise to rule given? In chapter 2, here we are squarely in chapter 2 in the place of the seven letters written to the seven churches. If you weren't with us during this time, no confusion. The book opens with seven letters sent out to seven different churches. And what we recognize is that the contents of each one of these letters is universal. The promises are universal. The warnings are universal. Our church had a wonderful time going through these seven letters because indeed each one of us in this room can look upon the contents of these seven letters and find a word of warning. Each one of us can then find also a word of forgiveness. Each one of us find a promise for growth. Because these are universal letters written to you and I. We have been invited to read technically somebody else's mail in these seven letters. But look at to whom the promise to judge is being given so that when we get to Revelation 20, the identity of these people is not very hard at all, actually. In chapter 2, I begin with you in verse 9 to the church at Smyrna. I know your tribulation. This is Christ as he writes to them, as he speaks to the church. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. 
keep that in mind, church. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews. They are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw you into prison. That you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. I will give you, do you notice the imagery? A crown of life. Keep that image of royalty and crown, this, this power to overcome by dying and finding yourself alive, bearing a crown. And look at the image that continues to the church at Thyatira as it continues to build even to the church of Redeemer this morning. Verse 25 of chapter 2 there also. Christ of the church, only hold fast what you have until I come. A great word for each of us this morning. Hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, you're overcoming, you're holding fast to him, I will give authority over the nations. And he, the one who holds fast in time until I come, the one who conquers by persevering to him will I give that he would rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star Continue now as we see that the authority to rule the nations is being given to the church. And look with me in chapter 3 as this image continues. Once again, a promise being given to the church universal. In chapter 3, verse 20. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me. A promise for real fellowship. Isn't that a blessing? Verse 21. The one who conquers. I will grant him to sit with me. On my throne. As I also conquered. And sat down with my father. On his throne. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the spirit says. To the churches. I ask you of this image back in our text now of chapter 20 of those who are seated on thrones to whom judicial authority is being granted. I ask you to whom was that promise made? That we would quite easily by the time we get to Revelation 20 identify who these people who have died and are now exercising authority are. To whom was the promise to do so made? Quite clearly, to the church. The seven letters are universal. The warnings in them also universal. Not to a narrow select few. Not like out of Laodicea, the two people who overcome. Or if ten overcome, I'll take 
two, and I'll give them the promise of rulership. I'll allow them to exercise authority. And I'll let you know if you've made it onto the roster after you've overcome. So they die, so they are raised, and then they find out, like in high school, if their name is on the list outside the gym door, and they get to make it to the team. But we recognize that isn't the nature of the promise at all. It is a call to perseverance and faithfulness to everyone who trusts in Christ. It is a promise given to every saint. To you. It is a call to you right now to hold fast to that which you have been given. It is a call to you to fight sin and endure. That in tribulation and difficulty, that you will indeed suffer along the way. He says to you, remain faithful even unto death. For I will give you a crown of life. I will give you a share in my authority to rule the nations. I will give in you an end time fellowship with me in union to me and my authority to rule judicially over the nations. This is given to the church. And then I ask you a second question. If it is so that these promises were given to the church, what is the timing with which this promise is to be delivered to you? If we look at the passage, we're trying to think, okay, so the promise is mine right now. Adam Thomas, right now, if I hold fast, as indeed he holds fast to me, and I continue by grace as he produces fruit, I continue to grow in him. As he keeps me, as he's promised, according to John 10, to never let anything happen to me that will take me out of his care. Though death come to my shore, I will be raised in him. When will this promise be mine to exercise rule? When I die. Did you see that? That the promise, each and every one of them in chapter 2 and chapter 3 is given not in the future. Like, after you die, then I'll list the roster, and then I'll return. I'll set up on the earth a physical kingdom with physical thrones, and I'll have you physically rule over the physical nations present. Maybe a few thousand years later after you've passed. We would have to think that up, wouldn't we? If we look at the flow of the passage and we see to whom the promise was given and the timing of its fulfillment, it is fulfilled upon when? Your death day. When your casket is set, you experience the partial fulfillment of ruling over the nations. So it is in this heavenly context, if we put this together, it's a heavenly context that we're gazing upon and the royal furniture tells us so. And if we look past the furniture and we see the people to whom the promise was given that they would rule, we recognize these people are not alive. They have overcome through death's dark corridor and they have been raised to life in Christ and they are exercising judicial authority in the afterlife 
now. This is giving us a window into heaven. A window into this gospel age right now on the earth in the parallel dimension in the afterlife. Your loved ones who have died in the Lord have been raised to reign with Him. They have died and come to life and reign with Christ for 1,000 years. Those in whom we fear might be passing away. Those who perhaps have a diagnosis that is nerve-wracking. The challenges that many of us have faced in and out within family and friends of cancer. The burdens that we bear with death. Not that we would be burdened as those who don't have hope, Paul says. But this window into it shows us that they, though they die in time, they are raised to life with Christ and they reign with Him for a thousand years. To die is gain. To be with Christ is far better. So, this is energizing to preach Christian funeral. It indeed is a celebration of a homegoing. This is a window into the thousand year period right now. So if I could summarize for you then just this brief comment on verse 4 as we kind of wind down our time together. What we have here, if I could, if I could kind of cement this in your mind, what we have here is a picture through symbolism of the thrones present. We have here a picture of when saints are translated to heaven upon death. They come to life and reign with Christ in the partial fulfillment of His consummate promise. This is a call to faithfulness on the part of every Christian here. This promise to die and come to life in Christ and to reign with Him for a thousand years is to you. And it is a call to you to persevere in faithfulness. Let this image serve. Is sin in a moment better? Each one of us wrestle with that reality. Does it speak louder to us in a moment than the promises of God for eternity? This is a call to the church, to the Christians, for faithfulness, even unto death. Let me kind of tackle a question that you might have on your mind together. And that is, how will this judgment exactly be exercised? If they die and come to reign with Christ for a thousand years and they begin to judicially rule over the nations, how is it that I would die maybe tonight, I will be alive in the presence of the Lord, and I will begin, while all of you remain here, I will begin ruling over the nations. You'll wonder a couple hours after I'm gone. I wonder how Adam's doing in his rulership. 
seem to be a bit intense in time or if that's relaxed in glory. I wonder if he's judicially prudent, strict adherent to the law, or if he's more gracious in his rule. Well, we've already thought about it backwards, haven't we? Let me suggest to you two things. One, I'll be Captain Obvious and state, I don't know. Um, I don't know how I'll exercise rule hidden in Christ any more than how you, the body of Christ, will exercise rule in Christ. I don't know. But I could put forward maybe two ideas that I think are probable and definitely possible, but I cannot give you a God-given word of promise here. But I can give you, I think, what are two possibilities and very probable. Number one, we recognize that all authority to rule and to judge and dispense equitable justice to every person ever created belongs only to one. It belongs to God. So it isn't a picture of a bunch of saints who are nasty in time, who then die and rise in Christ and begin that nastiness of execution in glory. They continue to just look at this person and say, I couldn't stand that person. Authority, rule, justice. We already don't hold this out as the day of vindication for you. You're receiving the promise wrongly. We recognize, one, that all rule and authority belongs to God who created all things and does all things right. So we recognize that any true judicial authority comes from him and is executed by him, which we all find hope in. Secondly, the next thing I would say, I think we have a context here of Revelation 20. I think we've kind of seen what the promise is of our judicial authority in chapters 18 and 19. Do you remember in chapter 18, Babylon the harlot, Babylon the uh, prostitute there, the image of materialism, Babylon was destroyed. Do you remember? All the people were mourning her and everybody was saddened. And God gave judgment to Babylon, and that was the end of chapter 18. By chapter 19, we have what? We have the response of the saints to the judgment of God against Babylon. So did you see the role of the saints in justice? The saints look to God who dispenses justice justly and perfectly, and we adhere to his law and agree with his ruling, and we simply usher forward in a choir of praise and adoration and agreement. Do you remember that? After Babylon was destroyed, the saints did one thing in the judicial act of God. We sang four times in a row, Hallelujah. Just are you, O God. By the fourth one, John reports, It was a deafening roar of hallelujah. I think this gives us a window into how it is that the saints will exercise a judicial role along with the risen Christ. They will simply agree with and praise His judicial execution. He will with perfect equity judge all that he has created. He will, with perfect omniscience, know the heart of every individual that ever lived. 
And it is to him we submit. And it is along his judicial authority that we will give praise. This is how, I think, we will rule as with a rod of iron the nations, the enemy, by agreeing with and giving praise to he who rules rightly. So it is then, what is the principal factor as we conclude? The principal factor or our contribution to this judgment. Why are we given this? Why are you given this promise that you will exercise this judgment? What is it that will stand out about you in judgment? It will be your testimony. That what you testified to in time, the sacrifices you made in time, the due honor you gave Christ in your life in time, and the trial, tribulation, and the persecution that those choices brought will stand in glory when you are raised, given a crown of life, and seen to have overcome. So Jesus says, fear not man who can kill the body. Live your life aggressively. Live it faithfully. Fear not man who can kill body. But fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. Don't live shallowly in your faith. Fear not, man. For your testimony in time will be upheld in glory and will serve the Lamb as he acts judicially toward the enemy. What you're doing in time matters for eternity. A brief recap of the book proves this to be true. Who are these people that are doing this now, according to the book of Revelation? Who is it that is sitting on this throne right now? You're putting now your grandma in faith who died in Christ. She stands as an overcomer. Your spouse, your friend that you've lost, those who are not with you right now and you carry about in your heart, you're putting them squarely in the place of living with Christ and experiencing the fulfillment of his promise that they who have overcome will live and reign with him. According to the book of Revelation, they are those who in chapter 2, verse 10, in tribulation they have been faithful even unto death. The book continues. These are they of chapter 6, verse 9, who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They are, these are they of chapter 7 of whom we've read, who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and they have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are they of chapter 11 who have been killed by the beast who made war with them. These are they of chapter 12 who have conquered the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives 
even unto death. These are they of chapter 13 who have gone into captivity, who have been slain by the sword, having heard the call for endurance and faith. They have all died. They have all been raised. And they all reign with Christ. So it is that though the beast may kill you physically, you will come to life spiritually in the power of the Lamb. Our verse for you this week as we leave this place, I I ask you to meditate upon it. Chapter 14, verse 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may have rest from their labors, for their deeds follow after them. Is it worth it? Father, we thank you for this text.